Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Delighted today to be joined by Sarah Monroe, who, well, I probably go back longer with her business partner than I do with her, but it was a delight to meet somebody who could actually work with Simon Scott, so firstly. And secondly, fascinated by her work. And in the book, I quoted her shed method in her, her book in there. And when we met, it was that meeting of minds in terms of looking at performance, high performance, but the individual. So, Sarah, I'm delighted that you've agreed to join and talk today. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me, Colin. It's a pleasure. Good. So, just talking about you, maybe give a bit of background to you. Um, we'll go from there. I mean, what, how the hell did you get here and how did the hell did you work with Simon Scott? Yeah. My career path began as a teacher, really. Actually, if I go back before that, Colin, really, I mean, I think as a child, and this is important in a way for me, because as a child, I, I loved anything to do with drama, music, dance, but particularly dance and music, actually. Well, performance generally. And I got very good at dance and very good at the violin at quite a young age. And that was because I had some fantastic teachers, I think, who allowed me to feel like I could sort of be better than I thought I could be. So during that sort of experience, I thought I'd love to be a teacher. I really would love to be a teacher. Sounds like a great job and helping people feel that they can be better than they think they are. So I decided I would be a teacher. So when I came out of university, I did a PGCE and I went to London and I decided that I wanted to work in quite challenging inner city comprehensives with the age group of 11 to 18. And I've realised that I did that for about the first 21 years of my career. I've always thought it was about 12 years or 13 years, but actually it was a, it was quite a significant amount of time on and off. I mean, I, I was full-time probably for about 13, 14 years, and then I did different things in education. But in that time, I became really, really intrigued as to what classroom leaders were doing myself included, to get the best out of a true comprehensive environment. So, you know, we're talking about schools where there were, in the last school that I taught, um, there were about 140 odd different languages spoken. It was the time when a lot of refugee status children were being sort of shipped in overnight and they would land at our door um, because we were in West London and it was the only school that hadn't didn't have a religious bias. And it was a really, really exciting time. And I learned so much in that time. And we can talk more about, about that potentially. But it was during that time that I thought, actually, the stuff that I was learning, particularly from the young people about what made them want to learn, became too compelling to just remain in education. In fact, I was more interested as being a form tutor than I was being a subject-specific teacher, to be honest. I became really, really excited and intrigued and bonded with the idea of a form. What enabled a group of people to be a good tutor group? Mm where they could go off and have lessons together. And as they got older, they'd have lessons separately, obviously. But in this school, they started in year seven, which was when they were 11 together. And they went all the way through with me mm. as a tutor or with a tutor yeah. right the way through to the time that they were uh, 16, 17. That was really interesting to me because you watched their growth. The thing that propelled me to go outside of education was... Being a tutor and having to look at report cards at the end of the day. 
So, you know, there'd be about four or five kids. Glad you didn't see mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there'd be about four or five children who were often on regular report and they would come at the end of the day and they'd have to share their report to the tutor and you had to sort of track their day. And what was so interesting about that is that in the space of sort of five mm-hmm. hours, a child could be have a report that said, totally brilliant, totally committed, did great work. And then the very next hour, total nightmare, needed to send them out, um, letter gone home. So I just became very intrigued as to what that classroom leader was doing that brought the best out of that child. And then the next classroom leader bringing the very worst out of that child. And so instead of doing detention, well, I did do detention, but I just had lots of conversations for about a year. I decided I was going to do an inquiry with these young people to understand what made them hungry to learn. And that was where I got some incredibly interesting data, really. And and the three pieces of top data that then launched me out of education and to set up Coaching Impact was the fact that they told me that they loved learning with teachers who were passionate about their subject. And they described that passion in very different ways. It wasn't necessarily all singing or dancing, but it was certainly contagious and really motivating for them. They could they they wanted to get into the world of the teacher and that interest, that genuine interest that they had in their subject. So that was point number one. The second point was they really wanted and loved going to work in lessons where they didn't know what the teacher was going to do with the content. So there was an air of anticipation around how they had crafted the content in a way that would be not just worksheets or not just books, but how was that teacher crafting the content that sort of caught their interest? So there was an air of expectation. I want to go to that teacher's lesson for they might do something interesting with the content. Was that different? Was it the difference that they created for each lesson or was it linked to the passion? I'm just interested in the two. because they, they... Well, I think the two are connected, actually. I think great classroom leaders are constantly asking themselves, how do I make this content relevant? Mm. There was something incredibly important about the word relevance because given that you know these these classrooms were full of a real mixed race mixed ability mixed language I mean everything and that's why I think you know for me it was an MBA in leadership it really was for me I mean I I do call it my MBA It, it helped me understand how to lead myself it helped me understand what really captivated people to want to push themselves beyond what they thought they were capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And it was a fasc- fascinating time. And I, I do think great teachers are totally brilliant and undervalued. I'd love to, to pick up on a couple of points, but I just want to, because I remember the one teacher who took geography for me and he had a passion about the Mezzo Journal um, and he had written books in it, but he just got me with geography. So I was pretty rubbish at everything because I just didn't get engaged. But this one teacher, I would have walked through walls for him and he adjusted. So I'm, I'm with you. And I, was, I had a privileged background, but I fought against everything to do with school apart from this one lesson. It's fascinating. I think it's incredibly important to have teachers that connect and really you know, we've all got them, haven't we? You just give one example. But, you know, if you speak to any adult and they've got somebody, be it someone at school or someone at university or someone at college or someone in their life that has captivated them and made them want to do what they wanted to do. So, you know, for me, it was basically teachers that taught me how to play the violin and dance well. And I, that, that's what made me go into the profession. But just the, the final point, um, Colin, has, I realised I said three points, but the final third point, which they told me, which I think is potentially the most 
profound for me is that in that malaise of 30 different individuals in that classroom they said that the teachers that they wanted to learn for the ones where they felt seen love that and heard and accepted and not necessarily accepted without being stretched but seen fully seen and understood in some way and i and reliable because a lot of these young people didn't have reliable backgrounds yeah. so there was something around consistency showing up being consistent being reliable all of that that felt incredibly powerful for learning mm-hmm. so those three things were just too important to remain just in education although i do believe education is the heart of everything that i still believe in and i think fundamentally i am a teacher <laughs> Uh, even though I now run a coaching business, I, I think there's a lot connected to that, and that's what l- made me feel excited about taking it to leaders more broadly out of education. What I love, though, is but when I sit and I, I am listened to you, I hear something and I see something which now resonates with me. Is that you know people talk about teachers teaching passing over information. But actually what you've talked about me with the form tutor and for the for people listening who don't understand the form, the, the year group or the, the class is the, the form. But that connection with individuals, with people, and for them to be seen and heard is the, is the big thing about whether it's teaching leadership or anything else that we get into is, is, is in there. I wanted you to paint a picture, though, for the listeners about who may be listening abroad in the U.S. about the comprehensive, because we we can joke and say, I, you know, went to a comp, but the comprehensive, particularly in London, had a particular feel. So I wanted maybe to evoke a a picture or a sense of what you were dealing with there, because you've talked in sort of a way about it, but it, it must have been quite an experience. Yeah, I mean, the comprehensive education system, it was a state school, so that meant that you didn't pay for the school. It served the area where the children were living. Now, what's interesting about this particular school, it was in quite a rich area of London, but it was serving a very broad sort of feeder what we would call a feeder environment. And so the children would arrive, and this was a 10-form entry school. So it was a very large school. So you had 10 forms per year group. So it was a very vibrant, large, buzzing school. And I can remember when I first met my husband, he came to meet me in the school, and he just found the whole foyer area terrifying because of its, like, noise and its mix and, you know, it was, but I found it very exciting. And in that particular school, it was very much supporting mixed ability. So it meant that you didn't really have classes that were set by ability. It's changed now, but in those days it was very mixed. So that was really a compelling inquiry into how young people learn. You know, do do you work and learn better because you have got people that are more able than you and also do you learn other things with people who are less able than you and how does that vary from class to class so it was a really interesting exploration in how do we set up an environment that allows people to learn which I think is really what leaders do now yeah and it takes us on to that that next phase because, you know, nowadays I look at, you know, we're, we're exploring with immersive playgrounds, as we call them. But I look at some of the educational pieces you get. And, for example, you know, sex education on Netflix, 
you know, how to educate your your daughter, your son around life, just getting to watch that. So I'm working in another place with social theater where, you know, how does somebody understand the criminal justice system? Well, you get a play and you get, it's acted out in front and they're able to interact. Now, that's the sort of thing where a teacher in the classroom is, you know, is, is starting to create those environments that people can be in show inquiry. They can they can listen, they can probe, but they can get their points of view and amplify their voice in early age. It's so important, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I also think theatre has got so much to teach leaders. And, you know, my background is theatre and performance, but we know what you're just saying there. It's around the different ways that you can play mm. to to understand more. And, you know, what you're talking about there reminds me of Forum Theatre when, you know, you create a play and the audience would be sitting around and they could shout stop at any point and they could come into the play. They could come into the scene and they could adapt it and move it and pivot it into another area. And, you know, this, that's you know part of ideation. That's part of, you know, all sorts of innovation that's going on now in, in organisations. If we can keep playing and being creative mm-hmm. around getting different ideas into the mix, theatre's got a great deal to offer, I think. Yeah. So you left with three things, yeah, yeah, and you took them. And then what did you do? Where did you go after that? Well, two things happened. That happened, but also I became pregnant. And I think the wonderful thing about pregnancy is it forces you to stop. Mm-hmm. And it forces you to take a break. So in that time, when you step away from something, I think this is an important point generally, actually, about how I keep remembering that point about stopping and breaking in order to reassess. But that was a really fundamental moment for me to step away and then immerse myself in motherhood Mm. for a year. I took a year out and that allowed me to assess, okay, what else could I do? And and I was um, married to a guy who came from a freelance Mm. way of working. I come from a, a family of teachers and people in the medical profession so you know we're we're very much sort of have a way of a vocation you train for it you do it I had no examples in my family of entrepreneurship or foundership or anything like that Mm. but I decided that I wanted to start coaching impact actually I didn't actually call it coaching impact that time I I thought I'd just become freelance and you know do in 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 the time but I thought I'd go back to school part-time for a year just to sort of get one foot in one camp and one foot in the other to test it and hated going part-time I'm an all-in or I'm an all-out person Colin that was my my lesson I'm with you I hated it (laughs) absolutely hated I hated sharing being a form tutor everything that I had really enjoyed before was compromised for me anyway so that was the launch I needed really to say right step away yeah and then I, I spent a couple of years just throwing myself at learning myself. Mm. So um, I was given a gift of a friend who was um, had some clients, advertising clients in in London, who she was running presentation skills training. And because of my background in performing arts, I stepped in and, and helped her with quite a few clients and learned a lot, a lot around going into organisations and the benefit of teaching and performance to an aid, aid people with impact. And that's where I began. Um, and then during that time, realised that certain individuals had specific things they wanted to work on. And I became really interested in the nuance of individual blocks, opportunities. And then I decided, OK, I just I need to do some work and I need to go and learn. So I did an NLP master's. I did an, an NLP coach training. I did a later. Then I tried with that. I played with that. And then I did um, another 
coach training that was different with a different lens and just sort of armed myself with lots of tools. I was a freelance coach mm-hmm. for a few years with the Oxford Group, which yep. is, you know, you're, you're familiar with that. That's, in fact, where I met Simon. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's all these sort of meetings that you, know, you start to join the dots and something else happens, right? So I'd like to say I had a definite plan and I was going to do this and this and this, but I didn't. No. I just worked with people I met and I trust sometimes you just trust, trust that when you meet people, something will happen. There was a red thread going all the way through that, though. There was a, there's a people, there's a connections, there's a, the nuances of the individual, the blocks, the individual work. There was, there's something flowing all the way through to where you are now, though. And I, it, so if I go back to it's to get people to be seen and heard and work with you, but you've got a particular passion around women and supporting women in there, which as a father of daughters yeah i'm a big fan of so how has that come about and and what are you doing in that space now again i mean it's just understanding where you think you're adding value Mm -hmm. and i know that when i left education and set up my own company i had some unhelpful limiting beliefs around that about my ability to do that my right to do that i can remember filling in a massive form for a large pharmaceutical company in order to be a coach for them and one of the questions was what's your business background and I remember having a complete and utter like moment of I haven't got a business background and then I started to craft my connection with what I thought education taught me around the business so the business of education I I entitled it Mm. anyway I didn't get I didn't get chosen and I didn't get chosen because of my lack of business uh, background and that that made me feel very inadequate for quite un- unnecessary. I now know in hindsight for an unnecessarily long amount of time. Yeah. Um, and I, I watch quite a lot of mid-career women who are ambitious and want to become more influential leaders. And I, and I watch the same things sometimes getting in the way. And I do see it happen more in women than I do in men. I do work with a lot of men and I love working with men. And it's not that I don't work with men. It's just that I can relate. And I also think... And I've been told that it's a helpful role model. There's so many women say, how did you have the guts to do that with the family? Mm-hmm. I, what I'm always amazed by, and it's in the same whether you're a woman or man, there's those little bits that you think are things that you just did and got over, yeah, that other people see as gold dust. I always remember another Sarah Garden who I work with, and she talks about her career but it's the bits that, when she's talking about it, she thinks are just normal. Other other women or other people who are sitting there are going, no, 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 I want to know more about that. How did how did you leave an organisation and come back, and how did you do you cope with that? How did you do all of that in your personal life and then still? So I'm I'm a big fan that it's sometimes you can't tickle yourself and you can't look back in your own life and understand the impact you can have on others until somebody picks it out of you and goes, I'd really like to understand that because that could help me. I love it. Yeah, and also we need to be further up organisations. It's it's a fact. And, it, you know, I say we because, you know, I've got two sisters, two daughters, but I, I also work in the world where, you know, the, the, I, I see it nearly every day. I see the attitude to it. And, and particularly not just the UK, but you start to go abroad, you start to see the cultural dimensions and you start to, to have that impact. But I want to take it back into a couple of things because the shared method for me 
you know, I mean, we had this conversation. I was wearing a whoop. You were wearing uh, your, your your ring, and which I've actually just purchased. So I want to <laughs> going along that route. But we wanted. I wanted to get down to this high performance piece because that's where you're you're working, and and that's where Mr. Scott is. You know, he's always been there, and he's always focused on that. And I love his work ethic, but I love his experimentation. So, what are you experimenting in that space? And I'd love just to to get the listeners to hear a bit about that. I mean, we experiment all the time, Simon and I. And when we first met, we thought, you know, what's the what's the connection between an ex Royal Marine and a violin and a ballet dancer and a teacher, you know? And actually, the yeah. we both we had this fun exercise. Just said, write down on a on a post it what, and we both wrote performance. So, I mean, I I was so lucky to meet Simon because we've we've had this over fifteen year experiment learning together, and I think. I think it's so valuable to find someone that you can learn with and experiment with and have each other's backs in that. So we've had this evolution and, you know, Shed Method is a container basically for everything that he and I have been experimenting with on ourselves, what we've learned from high performing teams that both he's worked with and I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, He does an awful lot of work with elite sport and is constantly learning and feeding back stuff back into our team that is invaluable and also we're constantly working and learning with and from our clients and it's it's that relationship that allows us to keep experimenting and testing and verifying and testing and verifying so we always start with ourselves Hmm. what can we do to be better and how has performance in our life allowed us to build rituals practices that have enabled us to remain strong and keep evolving. And and we believe that that's what leaders are constantly asking and never more so than now. It's hugely uncertain and volatile and all of the stuff that goes on in this current environment. And there's a hell of a lot of pressure in the system for people. So, you know, Simon and I are constantly understanding working out what's you know what's the new pressure and how can we support our clients in that and I think you know his work in elite sport is interesting because there's so many similarities between how they're having to be more deliberate around practice and that's really helpful to feed back into how do we help leaders be more deliberate about what they need to practice and how can we enable them so I suppose, you know, to your question, I think the main aim at the moment is to help them identify where the main effort is yeah. and protect their energy for the things that actually they can control and not feel distracted by the things that are not in their control mm-hmm. or the noise of others. And how do you lead others through the same uncertainty? So that's our main aim right now. Talk to people who might not know the Shed Method. If they haven't, they haven't read the book, so I'm not going to be talking to them. But, you know, if if they have read the book, great. But if they haven't, then they don't know what the Shed Method is. Because it, it's a very simple but very powerful framing of, of what we're about. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because when, when I wrote it, um, we, we were all thinking about how, what do, is it that we all do in a coaching impact. It's about helping people to make better choices. But, but actually... All of my conversations that I'm having with leaders, they want to be better at something. So I wrote it with the sort of title of Better Me, Mm -hmm. because that is the ambition that we're working with. Mm -hmm. The publisher, Penguin, felt like as they read it, that SHED, which stands for Sleep, Hydration, Exercise, Diet, which is the foundation of performance, if we 
don't own that, have rituals, have ways of of knowing what our conditions for success are in our basic shed, sleep, hydration, exercise, diet, etc. habits, if we haven't got that in play, it's very unlikely that we can bring the best of ourselves to the achievement that we're going for. So their advice, the editor's advice was, let's call it that because it sits at the heart of all performance. So that's why it's called the shed method. But the shed method is a book is offering readers a practical way of thinking about the choices they're making and applying the lessons in that to make the choices that they want. And it dances around the system of our three brains, which I know there's an awful lot of research and opinion to say it's not just three brains. Well, it isn't, but with the busy people that we're working with, the three brain analogy is helpful. Yeah which is sort of the, the thing behind me. Um, and, and then how do we enable people to be really conscious of the choices they're making about five energies that impact the alignment of those three brains so that we can be our best? And so the book looks at five energies, body energy, which is the shed. How do we feed our body so that we are in great shape to perform at our best? Um, how do we then choose the most appropriate mood, mood energy. How do we applying our mood energy? Simon and I are talking a lot about mood set and mindset as well as just mindset. There's mood set. How do we help people choose their mood right now, which impacts our ability to focus our mind energy on what matters most. So our mind energy depends on our mood and it depends on how much fuel we've got in our tank. Mm. And that chain is incredibly important substance underneath our mind energy choices and the other two sort of ace cards in the pack that can really make a difference to the choices we make are people energy who we surround ourselves with who's the boosting quality in our lives to keep helping us have ambition in the direction that we want and the final one is purpose energy how are we finding the energy of meaning where do we find our meaning energy from? And it's this sort of dance between those five energies, but also offering from stories of clients that we've worked with what they choose to do to enable them to be better. I love the mood set bits. I hadn't heard that before, but it, it is so true. What I also love is the language, because you're talking about dancing with systems, and we talk a lot about systems. But like you, our work, everybody starts at the what we call drive, which is the, you know, have I got enough personal energy to almost managing my energy in the right place at the right time then you can go off and deal with people then you can go off and do it with fresh ideas or you can do your learning but if we go back to unless you've got that energy for yourself it's properly selfish as simon gave me as the expression then absolutely yeah properly selfish we know we, you need to be yeah. properly selfish but you need to know what you're being properly selfish mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. and how and I think also, you know, you asked us about what we're focusing on now. We're, fo we're, we're really trying to help people build habits around their leadership practices. And, you know, there's so much pressure internally for people. They haven't got the bandwidth to do much. <laughs> but, you know, what they choose to do needs to be very deliberate. And the experimentation of testing the impact 
you know, what is their system for understanding the impact that they're having? Do they know? How are they stopping to review it, you know? And how do we help them build these habits? So we're going very much into digital um, animations that are quick, sharp refreshers for people to go, okay, what was it? Okay, let me just, I've got two minutes. I'm just going to refresh myself around some of the principles of these practices so that I can apply them in this next meeting or I can apply them in this next big critical impact opportunity and then how do we you know one of our clients at the moment has has asked us to really think about how do we have that on our phone how do we make that how do we build this sort of connection around main effort mm. through what we call critical impact opportunities so, you know how to be how to be really clear about where we're applying our energy we're having to stretch you know what this pandemic has helped us do is to think right okay how do we make this work without us because I, I think, it, and it's interesting because some people, and immediately when you hear, well, it's an app, okay, so I'm going back on my phone again. But but there's a piece for me about the person who is doing it needs to to work out how they're going to measure it. And so I've got the whoop, you've got the ring, which you're measuring sleep, um, breath is another thing. So if I want to write things manually, the old school, which I'm starting to do with a, a, a journal and a habit tracker, that's great. But for some people, their phone is the source of everything. So actually, if they're coming on and they're picking up that, oh, I've got two minutes, I could do this and I could connect in. And that's where I do my headspace and I do my PQ work, which is positive intelligence work. So I'm with you. You want to try and build it in a habit so that when you're in a real high pressure moment, it kicks in automatically. This is where my background in performance and what my violin teacher drilled me on breathing drilled me on breathing because actually if you haven't got your body calm in an exam you know the bow goes everywhere I mean it's hard to your body reflects through the instrument if you are carrying nerves which of course you are going to have nerves but you've got to manage them and what was amazing for me and I do write about this in the book actually uh, Colin but when I had an incredibly difficult year nine lesson where frankly you know two of them just one guy who features in the book all the way through called Wayne um he in no uncertain terms said very and I won't swear on this podcast but he basically swore at me to say just how boring my lesson was in front of everybody which I was 26 I mean I I was a new teacher I was absolutely like Mm. horrified by that but I also knew in that moment I had to make a choice that I could control because my whole body went into implode. And what automatically kicked in without my conscious awareness was the breathing habits that my violin teacher had systematically made me drill. And I found myself just focusing on my breath to give me that moment of choice to be able to say back to Wayne, okay, you know, in a way that held some credibility in front of the other 29 people in the class. And and that made me think, God, that's why it has to be a drill. these things have to be practiced outside of pressure so that when you're in pressure, they kick in. And that's what Simon and I, I mean, Simon's got so many stories, you know, about his uh, experience as a Royal Marine where, you know, your life is under threat. So you've got to have these habits to be able to support yourself, but also to be able to support others in high, high risk situations. And it's a purposeful practice of that. Our mutual friend, or not my friend, but you made uh, Be More Pirate author. It was fascinating. Um, He was posting last night with a tape across his mouth for um, mouth breathers for sleep. And it's funny, the more you get into breath and the more you get into the moment and you're talking about snipers, you're talking about all that work and breath and the book breath. 
then you realize how important it is. But actually, most of us forget about it and until we don't have it. Yeah, and it's free resource. It's a free resource. It costs us absolutely nothing. Why don't we focus on it and use it to our best? You know, and a lot of people, a lot of clients, and you probably get this as well, are doing it in yoga or they're doing it in Pilates or they're doing it, you know, if they play a musical instrument. But they are not connecting the dots to say how it could be really useful under pressure at work or in family situations or challenging conversations, etc. All of it's there for us if we did but apply attention to it and i think this goes into the the mind share because i i want to just ask you a couple of things on this but i wanted to make this point i've been geeking out in the high performance podcast don't know if you've let have listened to any of the episodes but they're fascinating but what i get from that is that there is so much but there's the basics and i think we need to re- redefine for education for everything for our, my daughters what is it what are the basics and breath is one of those basics breath about how to breathe how to deal with those difficult situations um, and we're launching this project the 500 this year and it's all about looking at, at helping undiscovered leaders, probably some of the people that you would have dealt with in the comprehensive who just the system didn't give them the opportunity. But it's not the math, the science, it's the building blocks of how to build a relationship, the breath, how to deal with themselves. All of that is so important as um, to get them to, to the first level in, in many ways. I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions, and I'm going to trial these out with you for the first time on this podcast. But this was something I was working with about five years ago, and I've forgotten. So if you had to summarize in two questions, the the first question is, what gets you bouncing out of bed in the morning? What's the thing that gets you bouncing out of bed in the morning? A good night's sleep (laughs) for a start. (laughs) I want to support people in being better Mm. it's as simple as that and what gets me out in bed in the morning is an opportunity to do that in some shape or another and I find it incredibly enlivening so it goes back to your your teaching days you're happiest in the form with the people and working yeah yeah I'm happiest in the work as well Mm. not thinking about the work Or, you know, that's what I found the most challenging thing about writing a book is it's such a lonely individual process. I mean, you know, Simon was right by me and so was Chris, my husband, but it's still fundamentally, as you know, a pretty lonely thing. And, you know, I would put, I started by putting book days in my diary and they would just freak me out because I'd get to a book day and think, my God, it's a book day. I've got to start writing, you know, and and I realised when I took you know, to pressure off myself is actually these ideas come when you're traveling or when you're running or when you're cooking or when you're in the shower and they come in little bite-sized pieces and take the pressure off the fact that you've got a book day ahead of you. It doesn't work like that, Sarah. So I I love connection Mm. and I love working in the moment with clients on real stuff. And I love the fact that real stuff is constantly changing at the moment. I'm with you on that because some of my team are trying to get me to step back from the work and the client work. You should be doing less delivery, you know, and I'm like, I don't, firstly, I don't want to. And secondly, if I'm doing less delivery, I'm not talking to the people I need to talk to to, and testing out and experimenting with new ideas. So I think that's such an important point you're talking about there. I once listened to somebody talking about uh, selling a business. Mm -hmm. And she said, the most important thing if you're going to sell a business is not care about it. Yeah. Like, I mean, she didn't mean, she meant that quite cynically, but she meant like, you're not in it and people don't know you're necessarily part of it. Yeah. And one of the moments for her was when she was taking client out for, or they were, they, their business was taking clients out and somebody came up to her and said, and who are you? Yeah. And they didn't know who they, who she was. And 
I think that's a really interesting dynamic about what gives you energy and on honouring that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me also think of a head teacher I was coaching once and her chair had said to her, why do you do the school play in the summer? You should be doing the um, books and setting up the business, you know, the sense for next year. And she said, that's my one opportunity to be with the children yeah. for a week on something. I started as a teacher. I mean, teaching is a classic example of starting with a passion and then you end up, the more senior you get, getting further and further away from the client base that you wanted to teach for. Yeah. And it's tough. It is. That. I always remember Nigel Purse's um, mutual contact of ours who was the one of the founders of the oxford group but i remember him coming in in the days where we had a video recorder in the room when we were working the oxford group yes and i was working with a group in the office and the video recorder was broken nigel walked past and he walked in and he fixed the video recorder and he walked back out and uh, one of the the group in there said oh you've got a really nice uh, janitor i think it was or a caretaker working in here but nigel would not even have worried that he was seen as that because as long as the work that was being done or he was getting in so i, I think sometimes the the bit for me is if i'm not doing the work with the people that we're trying to to tap into then i, I don't feel alive yeah that's cool bit anyway what keeps you awake at night so if you have some thinking about the next two years what's the the couple of things that's keeping you awake at night i think for me it's what business am i running i mean it's a big question but it's like i think what keeps me awake at night is really holding my feet to the fire for what we stand for and not getting distracted because i can get easily seduced by other things that oh we should be doing this or we should be doing that or you know oh Somebody else who's in our field is is looking at that and doing that. Simon is brilliant at saying, "What's the point? Why? Why? Yeah. Why are you? Why are you getting distracted by that?" And sometimes I ignore him and I get distracted anyway. And I find out that actually it's useful for our business. Yeah. And he will, to his credit, uh, honour that and acknowledge that. But he, but he's, but really good for each other in that way. I think. But that is what keeps me up at night. Is 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 saying, mm, "What if?" Mm. Oh, because I do like, I like new ideas. They, it excites me. But, but if I'm not careful, I can get overwhelmed with new ideas and then take my eyes off the actual staples that we do really, really well. I listened to somebody yesterday on that note who said who was working out how many days they had in their life and how many they had gone already and how many they had left. And it was quite a dark moment, but it was that moment of going, yeah, okay, so what do I really, really want to do in the time that I have left on this planet? Uh, and I think it is a, is a balance between how much more broader impact can we have. Particularly, I, I really want to impact education as, you know, keep impacting education that's always a constant feel. But, and, and, you know, then there's your family. You know, there's how happy are your children. You're only as happy as your least happy child. Yeah. Oh. And that can keep me awake at night, right? Yep. With you on that. And actually, sometimes it's more difficult to do that with your children than it is with your clients. <laughs> Absolutely. And what you can offer your clients, your children don't want. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's fi- that's my biggest learning curve. Well, I've learned so much from my young 20-year-old children around how I can most usefully support them. Mm. And it's not in the way that I might support a client. That's a big lesson for me. I would agree. My eldest daughter is my biggest teacher, and and sometimes in, not in a nice way. Oh, definitely not in a nice way. In a very painful way, often, you know. But it's good. If you listen, it's good, I think. I've, 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 you know, I've found it hard, but it's always useful. 
You know what? I love our conversations and I'm sure everybody listening to this would love to, to hear more about it. If they want to find out more about you, maybe about Simon as well, where would they go to define? We are at coachingimpact.co.uk. You can find us there. We're both on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Simon's not on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use it that much. I, I mean, that's the other thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, what is a useful distraction when it comes to social media? But that's a whole other podcast. I was just about to say, I'm, I'm just about to go on a 30-day LinkedIn sprint. And so I'm going to be trying just for experimentation because everybody's talking about it, but I'm not sure I know what I'm letting myself in for. So, yeah. On that note, Sarah, thank you so much for being on today. You're very welcome, Colin. It's been a delight. Thank you.